Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. What will Lassiter do when Jane Witherstein's true intentions are revealed? Zane Gray. Today on the Classic Tales Podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales Podcast. Thank you for listening. We are proudly supported by our listeners. We couldn't do this without you. Your monthly donation helps in so many ways. And it also gives you access to more classic titles. Go to ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com and become a financial supporter today. Thank you so much. The Arzen Lupin Podcast hit the number 49 spot on the Canadian Fiction Podcast charts last week. Be sure to check out our Gentleman Burglar's own show and tell your friends. If you'd like to listen and review the amazing audiobook Cuban Sun Rising by Charles Gomez, please reach out to us. I'll send you a free copy. Thanks for your help. This week, we continue our series of Riders of the Purple Sage by Zane Grey. Last week, Venters and Bess found a secret place where they could hide and heal. Today, we'll pick up right where we left off there. And now, Riders of the Purple Sage, Part 5 of 12, by Zane Gray. Chapter 10. Love During all these waiting days, Venters, with the exception of the afternoon when he had built the gate in the gorge, had scarcely gone out of sight of camp and never out of hearing. His desire to explore Sunrise Valley was keen, and on the morning after his long talk with the girl, he took his rifle and, calling Ring, made a move to start. The girl lay back in a rude chair of boughs he had put together for her. She had been watching him, and when he picked up the gun and called the dog, Venters thought she gave a nervous start. I'm only going to look over the valley, he said. Will you be gone long? No, he replied, and started off. The incident set him thinking of his former impression, that after her recovery from fever, she did not seem at ease unless he was close at hand. It was fear of being alone, due, he concluded, most likely to her weakened condition. He must not leave her much alone. As he strode down the sloping terrace, rabbits scampered before him, and the beautiful valley quail, as purple in color as the sage on the uplands, ran fleetly along the ground into the forest. It was pleasant under the trees, in the gold-flecked shade, with the whistle of quail and twittering of birds everywhere. Soon he had passed the limit of his former excursions and entered new territory. Here the woods began to show open glades and brooks running down from the slope, and presently he emerged from shade into the sunshine of a meadow. The shaking of the high grass told him of the running of animals, what species he could not tell, 
but from Ring's manifest desire to have chase, they were evidently some kind wilder than rabbits. Venters approached the willow and cottonwood belt that he had observed from the height of slope. He penetrated it to find a considerable stream of water and great half-submerged mounds of brush and sticks, and all about him were old and new gnawed circles at the base of the cottonwoods. Beaver! he exclaimed. By all that's lucky. The meadow's full of beaver. How do they ever get here? Beaver had not found a way into the valley by the trail of the cliff dwellers. Of that he was certain. And he began to have more than curiosity as to the outlet or inlet of the stream. When he passed some dead water, which he noted was held by a beaver dam, there was a current in the stream, and it flowed west. Following its course, he soon entered the oak forest again, and passed through to find himself before massed and jumbled ruins of cliff wall. There were tangled thickets of wild plum trees and other thorny growths that made passage extremely laborsome. He found innumerable tracks of wildcats and foxes. Rustlings in the thick undergrowth told him of stealthy movements of these animals. At length, his further advance appeared futile, for the reason that the stream disappeared into a split at the base of immense rocks over which he could not climb. To his relief, he concluded that though beaver might work their way up the narrow chasm where the water rushed, it would be impossible for men to enter the valley there. This western curve was the only part of the valley where the walls had been split asunder, and it was a wildly rough and inaccessible corner. Going back a little way, he leaped the stream and headed toward the southern wall. Once out of the oaks, he found again the low terrace of aspens, and above that, the wide open terrace, fringed by silver spruces. This side of the valley contained the wind or water-worn caves. As he pressed on, keeping to the upper terrace, cave after cave opened out of the cliff, now a large one, now a small one. Then yawned, quite suddenly and wonderfully above him, the great cavern of the cliff-dwellers. It was still a goodly distance, and he tried to imagine, if it was so huge from where he stood, what it would be when he got there. He climbed the terrace, and then faced the long, gradual ascent of weathered rock and dust, which made climbing too difficult for attention to anything else. At length, he entered a zone of shade and looked up. He stood just within the hollow of a cavern so immense that he had no conception of its real dimensions. The curved roof, stained by ages of leaking, with buff and black and rust-colored streaks, swept up and loomed higher and seemed to soar to the rim of the cliff. Here again was a magnificent arch, such as formed the great gateway to the valley. Only in this instance, it formed the dome of a cave instead of the span of a bridge. Venters passed onward and upward. The stones he dislodged rolled down with strange, hollow crack and roar. He had climbed a hundred rods inward, and yet he had not reached the base of the shelf where the cliff dwellings rested. A long half-circle of connected stone house, with little dark holes that he fancied were eyes. At length, he gained the base of the shelf, and here he found steps cut into the rock. These facilitated climbing, and as he went up, he thought how easily this vanished race of men might once have held that stronghold against an army. 
there was only one possible place to ascend, and this was narrow and steep. Venters had visited cliff dwellings before, and they had been in ruins, and of no great character or size, but this place was of proportions that stunned him, and it had not been desecrated by the hand of man, nor had it been crumbled by the hand of time. It was a stupendous tomb. It had been a city. It was just as it had been left by its builders. The little houses were there, the smoke-blackened stains of fires, the pieces of pottery scattered about cold hearths, the stone hatchets, and stone pestles and mealing stones lay beside round holes polished by years of grinding maize, lay there as if they had been carelessly dropped yesterday. But the cliff-dwellers were gone. Dust. They were dust on the floor or at the foot of the shelf, and their habitations and utensils endured. Venters felt the sublimity of that marvelous vaulted arch, and it seemed to gleam with a glory of something that was gone. How many years had passed since the cliff-dwellers gazed out across the beautiful valley as he was gazing now? How long had it been since women ground grain in those polished holes? What time had rolled by since men of an unknown race lived, loved, fought, and died there? Had an enemy destroyed them? Had disease destroyed them? or only that greatest destroyer, time. Venter saw a long line of blood-red hands painted low down upon the yellow roof of stone. Here was strange portent, if not an answer to his queries. The place oppressed him. It was light, but full of a transparent gloom. It smelled of dust and musty stone, of age and disuse. It was sad. It was solemn. It had the look of a place where silence had become master and was now irrevocable and terrible and could not be broken. Yet at the moment, from high up in the carved crevices of the arch, floated down the low, strange wail of wind, a knell indeed for all that had gone. Venters, sighing, gathered up an armful of pottery, such pieces as he thought strong enough and suitable for his own use, and bent his steps toward camp. He mounted the terrace at an opposite point to which he had left. He saw the girl looking in the direction he had gone. His footsteps made no sound in the deep grass, and he approached close without her being aware of his presence. Whitey lay on the ground near where she sat, and he manifested the usual actions of welcome, but the girl did not notice them. She seemed to be oblivious to everything near at hand. She made a pathetic figure drooping there, with her sunny hair contrasting so markedly with her white, wasted cheeks, and her hands listlessly clasped, and her little bare feet propped in the framework of the rude seat. Venters could have sworn and laughed in one breath at the idea of the connection between this girl and Aldring's masked rider. She was the victim of more than accident of fate, a victim to some deep plot, the mystery of which burned him. As he stepped forward with a half-formed thought that she was absorbed in watching for his return, she turned her head and saw him, a swift start, a change rather than rush of blood under her white cheeks, a flashing of big eyes that fixed their glance upon him, 
transformed her face in that single instant of turning, and he knew she had been watching for him, that his return was the one thing in her mind. She did not smile. She did not flush. She did not look glad. All these would have meant little compared to her indefinite expression. Venters grasped the peculiar, vivid, vital something that leaped from her face. It was as if she had been in a dead, hopeless clamp of inaction and feeling, and had been suddenly shot through and through with quivering animation. Almost it was as if she had returned to life. And Venters thought, with lightning swiftness, I've saved her. I've unlinked her from that old life. She was watching as if I were all she had left on earth. She belongs to me. The thought was startlingly new, like a blow it was in an unprepared moment. The cheery salutation he had ready for her died unborn, and he tumbled the pieces of pottery awkwardly on the grass while some unfamiliar, deep-seated emotion, mixed with pity and glad assurance of his power to succor her, held him dumb. What a load you had, she said. Why, they're pots and crocks. Where did you get them? Venters laid down his rifle, and filling one of the pots from his canteen, he placed it on the smoldering campfire. Hope it'll hold water, he said presently. Why, there's an enormous cliff dwelling just across here. I got the pottery there. Don't you think we needed something? That tin cup of mine has served to make tea, broth, soup, everything. I noticed we hadn't a great deal to cook in. She laughed. It was the first time. He liked that laugh. And though he was tempted to look at her, he did not want to show his surprise or his pleasure. Will you take me over there and all around in the valley pretty soon when I'm well? She added. Indeed I shall. It's a wonderful place. Rabbits so thick you can't step without kicking one out. And quail, beaver, foxes, wildcats. We're in a regular den. But haven't you ever seen a cliff dwelling? No. I've heard about them, though. The, the men say the pass is full of old houses and ruins. Why, I should think you'd have run across one in all your riding around, said Venters. He spoke slowly, choosing his words carefully, and he essayed a perfectly casual manner, and pretended to be busy assorting pieces of pottery. She must have no cause again to suffer shame for curiosity of his, yet never in all his days had he been so eager to hear the details of anyone's life. When I wrote, I wrote like the wind, she replied and never had time to stop for anything. I remember that day I, I met you in the pass. How dusty you were. How tired your horse looked. Were you always riding? Oh, no. Sometimes not for months, when I was shut up in the cabin. Venters tried to subdue a hot tingling. You were shut up then? He asked carelessly. When Oldring went away on his long trips, he was gone for months sometimes, he shut me up in the cabin. What for? Perhaps to keep me from running away. I always threatened that. Mostly, though, because the men got drunk at the villages. But they were always good to me. 
I wasn't afraid. A prisoner. That must have been hard on you. I liked that. As long as I can remember, I've been locked up there at times, and those times were the only happy ones I ever had. It's a big cabin, high up on a cliff, and I could look out. Then I had dogs and pets I had tamed, and books. There was a spring inside, and food stored, and the men brought me fresh meat. Once I was there one whole winter. It now required deliberation on Venter's part to persist in his unconcern and to keep at work. He wanted to look at her, to volley questions at her. As long as you can remember, you've lived in Deception Pass, he went on. I have a dim memory of some other place, and women and children, but I can't make anything of it. Sometimes I think till I'm weary. Then you can read. You have books? Oh yes, I can read, and write too, pretty well. Oldring is educated. He taught me, and years ago an old rustler lived with us, and he had been something different once. He was always teaching me. So Oldring takes long trips, mused Venters. Do you know where he goes? No. Every year he drives cattle north of Stirling, then does not return for months. I heard him accused once of living two lives, and he killed the man. That was at Stone Bridge. Venters dropped his apparent task and looked up with an eagerness he no longer strove to hide. Bess, he said, using her name for the first time. I suspected Old Ring was something besides a rustler. Tell me, what's his purpose here in the pass? I believe much that he has done was to hide his real work here. You're right. He's more than a rustler. In fact, as the men say, his rustling cattle is now only a bluff. There's gold in the canyons. Ah, yes, there's gold. Not in great quantities, but gold enough for him and his men. They wash for gold week in and week out. Then they drive a few cattle and go into the villages to drink and shoot and kill, to bluff the riders. Drive a few cattle? But best the Witherstein herd, the Red Herd, twenty-five hundred head. That's not a few. And I tracked them into a valley near here. Oldring never stole the Red Herd. He made a deal with Mormons. The riders were to be called in, and Oldring was to drive the herd and keep it till a certain time. I won't know when, then drive it back to the range. What his share was, I didn't hear. Did you hear why that deal was made? queried Venters. No, but it was a trick of Mormons. They're full of tricks. I've heard Oldring's men tell about Mormons. Maybe the Witherstein woman wasn't minding her halter. I saw the man who made the deal. He was a little queer-shaped man, all humped up. He sat his horse well. I heard one of our men say afterward, there was no better rider on the sage than this fella. What was the name? I forget. Jerry Card, suggested Venters. That's it. I remember. It's a name easy to remember. And Jerry Card appeared to be on fair terms with Oldring's men. I shouldn't wonder, replied Venters thoughtfully. Verification of his suspicions in regard to Tull's underhand work for the deal with Oldring made by Jerry Card assuredly had its inception in the Mormon elder's brain and had been accomplished through his orders, revived in Venters a memory of hatred that had been smothered by press of other emotions. 
Only a few days had elapsed since the hour of his encounter with Tull, yet they had been long forgotten and now seemed far off, and the interval one that now appeared large and profound with incalculable change in his feelings. Hatred of Tull still existed in his heart, but it had lost its white heat. His affection for Jane Witherstein had not changed in the least. Nevertheless, he seemed to view it from another angle and see it as another thing, what he could not exactly define. The recalling of these two feelings was to Venters like getting glimpses into a self that was gone. And the wonder of them, perhaps the change which was too elusive for him, was the fact that a strange irritation accompanied the memory and a desire to dismiss it from mind. And straightway he did dismiss it, to return to thoughts of his significant present. Bess, tell me one more thing, he said. Haven't you known any women, any young people? Sometimes there were women with the men, but Oldring never let me know them. And all the young people I ever saw in my life was when I rode fast through the villages. Perhaps that was the most puzzling and thought-provoking thing she had yet said to Venters. He pondered, more curious the more he learned, but he curbed his inquisitive desires, for he saw her shrinking on the verge of that shame, the causing of which had occasioned him such self-reproach. He would ask no more. Still, he had to think, and he found it difficult to think clearly. This sad-eyed girl was so utterly different from what it would have been reason to believe such a remarkable life would have made her. On this day, he had found her simple and frank, as natural as any girl he had ever known. About her there was something sweet. Her voice was low and well-modulated. He could not look into her face, meet her steady, unabashed, yet wistful eyes, and think of her as the woman she had confessed herself. Oldring's masked rider sat before him, a girl dressed as a man. She had been made to ride at the head of infamous forays and drives. She had been imprisoned for many months of her life in an obscure cabin. At times, the most vicious of men had been her companions, and the vilest of women, if they had not been permitted to approach her, had at least cast their shadows over her. But, but in spite of all this, there thundered at Venters some truth that lifted its voice higher than the clamoring facts of dishonor. Some truth that was the very life of her beautiful eyes. And it was innocence. In the days that followed, Venters balanced perpetually in mind this haunting conception of innocence over against the cold and sickening fact of that unintentional yet actual gift. How could it be possible for the two things to be true? He believed the latter to be true, and he would not relinquish his conviction of the former. And these conflicting thoughts augmented the mystery that appeared to be a part of Bess. In those ensuing days, however, it became clear as clearest light that Bess was rapidly regaining strength, that, unless reminded of her long association with Oldring, she seemed to have forgotten it, that, like an Indian who lives solely from moment to moment, she was utterly absorbed in the present. Day by day, Venters watched the white of her face slowly change to brown, 
and the wasted cheeks fill out by imperceptible degrees. There came a time when he could just trace the line of demarcation between the part of her face once hidden by a mask and that left exposed to wind and sun. When that line disappeared in clear bronze tan, it was as if she had been washed clean of the stigma of Oldring's masked rider. The suggestion of the mask always made Venters remember. Now that it was gone, he seldom thought of her past. Occasionally he tried to piece together the several stages of strange experience and to make a whole. He had shot a masked outlaw, the very sight of whom had been ill omen to riders. He had carried off a wounded woman whose bloody lips quivered in prayer. He had nursed what seemed a frail shrunken boy, and now he watched a girl whose face had become strangely sweet, whose dark blue eyes were ever upon him without boldness, without shyness, but with a steady, grave, and growing light. Many times Venters found the clear gaze embarrassing to him. Yet, like wine, it had an exhilarating effect. What did she think when she looked at him so? Almost he believed she had no thought at all. All about her and the present there in Surprise Valley, and the dim yet subtly impending future, fascinated Venters and made him thoughtful, as all his lonely vigils in the sage had not. Chiefly it was the present that he wished to dwell upon, but it was the call of the future which stirred him to action. No idea had he of what the future had in store for Bess and him. He began to think of improving Surprise Valley as a place to live in, for there was no telling how long they would be compelled to stay there. Venters stubbornly resisted the entering into his mind of an insistent thought that, clearly realized, might have made it plain to him that he did not want to leave Surprise Valley at all. But it was imperative that he consider practical matters, and whether or not he was destined to stay long there, he felt the immediate need of a change of diet. It would be necessary for him to go farther afield for a variety of meat, and also that he soon visit Cottonwoods for a supply of food. It occurred again to Venters that he could go to the canyon where Oldring kept his cattle, and at little risk he could pack out some beef. He wished to do this, however, without letting Bess know of it till after he had made the trip. Presently, he hit upon the plan of going while she was asleep. That very night, he stole out of camp, climbed up under the stone bridge, and entered the outlet to the pass. The gorge was full of luminous gloom. Balancing rock loomed dark and leaned over the pale descent. Transformed in the shadowy light, it took shape and dimensions of a spectral god, waiting, waiting for the moment to hurl himself down upon the tottering walls and close forever the outlet to Deception Pass. At night, more than by day, Venters felt something fearful and fateful in that rock and that it had leaned and waited through a thousand years to have somehow to deal with his destiny. Old man, if you must roll, wait till I get back to the girl, and then roll, he said aloud, as if the stones were indeed a god. And those spoken words, in their grim note to his ear, as well as contents to his mind, told Venters that he was all but drifting on a current 
which he had not power nor wish to stem. Venters exercised his usual care in the matter of hiding tracks from the outlet, yet it took him scarcely an hour to reach Oldring's cattle. Here, sight of many calves changed his original intention, and instead of packing out meat, he decided to take a calf out alive. He roped one, securely tied its feet, and swung it over his shoulder. Here was an exceedingly heavy burden, but Venters was powerful. He could take up a sack of grain and with ease pitch it over a pack saddle, and he made long distance without resting. The hardest work came in the climb up to the outlet and on through to the valley. When he had accomplished it, he became fired with another idea that again changed his intention. He would not kill the calf, but keep it alive. He would go back to Oldring's herd and pack out more calves. Thereupon, he secured the calf in the best available spot for the moment and turned to make a second trip. When Venters got back to the valley with another calf, it was close upon daybreak. He crawled into his cave and slept late. Bess had no inkling that he had been absent from camp nearly all night and only remarked solicitously that he appeared to be more tired than usual and more in the need of sleep. In the afternoon, Venters built a gate across a small ravine near camp and here corralled the calves, and he succeeded in completing his task without Bess being any the wiser. That night he made two more trips to Aldring's range, and again on the following night, and yet another on the next. With eight calves in his corral, he concluded that he had enough. But it dawned upon him then that he did not want to kill one. I've rustled Aldring's cattle, he said, and laughed. He noted then that all the calves were red. Red, he exclaimed, from the red herd. I've stolen Jane Witherstein's cattle. That's about the strangest thing yet. One more trip he undertook to Oldring's Valley, and this time he roped a yearling steer and killed it and cut out a small quarter of beef. The howling of coyotes told him he need have no apprehension that the work of his knife would be discovered. He packed the beef back to camp and hung it on a spruce tree. Then he sought his bed. On the morning he was up bright and early, glad that he had a surprise for Bess. He could hardly wait for her to come out. Presently she appeared and walked under the spruce. Then she approached the campfire. There was a tinge of healthy red in the bronze of her cheeks, and her slender form had begun to round out in graceful lines. Bess, didn't you say you were tired of rabbit? inquired Venters, and quail and beaver. Indeed I did. What would you like? I'm tired of meat, but if we have to live on it, I'd like some beef. Well, how does that strike you? Venters pointed to the quarter hanging from the spruce tree. We'll have fresh beef for a few days, then we'll cut the rest into strips and dry it. Where did you get that? asked Bess slowly. I stole that from Oldring. You went back to the canyon? You risked? While she hesitated, the tinge of bloom faded out of her cheeks. It wasn't any risk, but it was hard work. I'm sorry I said I was tired of rabbit. Why, how? When did you get that beef? Last night. While I was asleep? Yes. 
I woke last night sometime, but I didn't know. Her eyes were widening, darkening with thought, and whenever they did so, the steady, watchful, seeing gaze gave place to the wistful light. In the former, she saw as the primitive woman without thought. In the latter, she looked inward, and her gaze was the reflection of a troubled mind. For long, Venters had not seen that dark change, that deepening of blue, which he thought was beautiful and sad. But now he wanted to make her think. I've done more than pack in that beef, he said. For five nights I've been working while you slept. I've got eight calves corralled near a ravine. Eight calves, all alive and doing fine. You went five nights? All that vendors could make of the dilation of her eyes, her slow pallor, and her exclamation was fear. Fear for herself or for him. Yes, I didn't tell you because I knew you were afraid to be left alone. Alone? She echoed his word, but the meaning of it was nothing to her. She had not even thought of being left alone. It was not, then, fear for herself, but for him. This girl, always slow of speech and action, now seemed almost stupid. She put forth a hand that might have indicated the groping of her mind. Suddenly she stepped swiftly to him, with a look and touch that drove from him any doubt of her quick intelligence or feeling. Oldring has men watch the herds. They would kill you. You must never go back again. When she had spoken, the strength in the blaze of her died, and she swayed toward Venters. Bess, I'll not go again, he said, catching her. She leaned against him, and her body was limp and vibrated to a long, wavering tremble. Her face was upturned to his. Woman's face, woman's eyes, woman's lips all acutely and blindly and sweetly and terribly truthful in their betrayal. But as her fear was instinctive, so was her clinging to this one and only friend. Venters gently put her from him and steadied her upon her feet, and all the while his blood raced wild and a thrilling tingle unsteadied his nerve and something that he had seen and felt in her that he could not understand seemed very close to him, warm and rich as a fragrant breath, sweet as nothing had ever before been sweet to him. With all his will, Venter strove for calmness and thought and judgment unbiased by pity and reality unswayed by sentiment. Bess's eyes were still fixed upon him, with all her soul bright in that wistful light. Swiftly, Resolutely, he put out of mind all of her life except what had been spent with him. He scorned himself for the intelligence that made him still doubt. He meant to judge her as she had judged him. He was face to face with the inevitableness of life itself. He saw destiny in the dark, straight path of her wonderful eyes. Here was the simplicity, the sweetness of a girl contending with new and strange and enthralling emotions. Hear the living truth of innocence. Hear the blind terror of a woman confronted with the thought of death to her savior and protector. All this Venters saw. But besides, there was in Bess's eyes 
a slow, dawning consciousness that seemed about to break out in glorious radiance. Bess, are you thinking? He asked. Yes. Oh, yes. Do you realize we are here all alone, man and woman? Yes. We thought that we may make our way out to civilization, or we may have to stay here, alone, hidden from the world, all our lives. I never thought, till now. Well, what's your choice? To go, or to stay here, alone with me? Stay. Newborn thought of self, ringing vibrantly in her voice, gave her answer singular power. Venters trembled, and then swiftly turned his gaze from her face, from her eyes. He knew what she had only half divined, that she loved him. Chapter 11 Faith and Unfaith At Jane Witherstein's home, the promise made to Mrs. Larkin to care for little Fay had begun to be fulfilled. Like a gleam of sunlight through the cottonwoods was the coming of the child to the gloomy house of Witherstein. The big, silent halls echoed with childish laughter. In the shady court, where Jane spent many of the hot July days, Fay's tiny feet pattered over the stone flags and splashed in the amber stream. She prattled incessantly. What difference, Jane thought, a child made in her home. It had never been a real home, she discovered. Even the tidiness and neatness she had so observed, and upon which she had insisted to her women, became, in the light of Fay's smile, habits that now lost their importance. Fay littered the court with Jane's books and papers, and other toys her fancy improvised, and many a strange craft went floating down the little brook and it was owing to Fay's presence that Jane Witherstein came to see more of Lassiter. The writer had, for the most part, kept to the sage. He rode for her, but he did not seek her except on business, and Jane had to acknowledge in pique that her overtures had been made in vain. Fay, however, captured Lassiter the moment he first laid eyes on her. Jane was present at the meeting, and there was something about it which dimmed her sight and softened her towards this foe of her people. The rider had clanked into the court, a tired yet wary man, always looking for the attack upon him that was inevitable and might come from any quarter, and he had walked right up upon little Fay. The child had been beautiful even in her rags and amid the surroundings of the hovel in the sage, but now, in a pretty white dress, with her shining curls brushed and her face clean and rosy, she was lovely. She left her play and looked up at Lassiter. If there was not an instinct for all three of them in that meeting, an unreasoning tendency toward a closer intimacy, then Jane Witherstein believed she had been subject to a queer fancy. She imagined any child would have feared Lassiter, and Faye Larkin had been a lonely, a solitary elf of the sage, not at all an ordinary child, and exquisitely shy with strangers. She watched Lassiter with great, round, grave eyes, but showed no fear. 
The rider gave Jane a favorable report of cattle and horses, and as he took the seat to which she invited him, little Fay edged as much as half an inch nearer. Jane replied to his look of inquiry and told Fay's story. The rider's gray, earnest gaze troubled her. Then he turned to Fay and smiled in a way that made Jane doubt her sense of the true relation of things. How could Lassiter smile so at a child when he had made so many children fatherless? But he did smile, and to the gentleness she had seen a few times, he added something that was infinitely sad and sweet. Jane's intuition told her that Lassiter had never been a father, but if life ever so blessed him, he would be a good one. Faye also must have found that smile singularly winning, for she edged closer and closer, and then, by way of feminine capitulation, went to Jane, from whose side she bent a beautiful glance upon the rider. Lassiter only smiled at her. Jane watched them, and realized that now was the moment she should seize, if she was ever to win this man from his hatred. But the step was not easy to take. The more she saw of Lassiter, the more she respected him. And the greater her respect, the harder it became to lend herself to mere coquetry. Yet as she thought of her great motive, of Tull, and of that other, whose name she had schooled herself never to think of in connection with Millie Earn's Avenger, she suddenly found she had no choice. And her creed gave her boldness far beyond the limit to which vanity would have led her. Lassiter, I see so little of you now, she said, and was conscious of heat in her cheeks. I've been riding hard, he replied. But you can't live in the saddle. You come in sometimes. Won't you come here to see me? Oftener? Is that an order? Nonsense. I simply ask you to come to see me when you find time. Why? The query once heard, was not so embarrassing to Jane as she might have imagined. Moreover, it established in her mind a fact that there existed actually other than selfish reasons for her wanting to see him. And as she had been bold, so she determined to be both honest and brave. I've reasons, only one of which I need mention, she answered. If it's possible, I want to change you toward my people and on the moment I can conceive of little I wouldn't do to gain that end. How much better and freer Jane felt after that confession. She meant to show him that there was one Mormon who could play a game or wage a fight in the open. <laughs> I reckon, said Lassiter, and he laughed. It was the best in her, if the most irritating, that Lassiter always aroused. Will you come? She looked into his eyes, and for the life of her could not quite subdue an imperiousness that rose with her spirit. I never asked so much of any man, except Burn Venters. Appears to me that you'd run no risk, or Venters, either. But maybe that doesn't hold good for me. You mean it wouldn't be safe for you to be often here? You look for ambush in the cottonwoods? Not that so much. At this juncture, little Faye sidled over to Lassiter. Has you a little girl? she inquired. No, Lassie, replied the writer. 
Whatever Faye seemed to be searching for in Lassiter's sun-reddened face and quiet eyes, she evidently found. You can come see me, she added. And with that, shyness gave place to friendly curiosity. First his sombrero, with its leather band and silver ornaments, commanded her attention. Next his quirt, and then the clinking silver spurs. These held her for some time, but presently, true to childish fickleness, she left off playing with them to look for something else. She laughed in glee as she ran her little hands down the slippery, shiny surface of Lassiter's leather chaps. Soon, she discovered one of the hanging gun sheaths, and she dragged it up and began tugging at the huge black handle of the gun. Jane Witherstein repressed an exclamation. What significance there was to her in that little girl's efforts to dislodge that heavy weapon. Jane Witherstein saw Faye's play and her beauty and her love as most powerful allies to her own woman's part in a game that suddenly had acquired a strange zest and a hint of danger. And as for the writer, he appeared to have forgotten Jane in the wonder of this lovely child playing about him. At first he was much the shyer of the two. Gradually, her confidence overcame his backwardness, and he had the temerity to stroke her golden curls with a great hand. Faye rewarded his boldness with a smile, and when he had gone to the extreme of closing that great hand over her little brown one, she said simply, I like you. Sight of his face then made Jane oblivious for the time to his character as a hater of Mormons. Out of the mother longing that swelled her breast, she divined the child hunger in Lassiter. He returned the next day and the next. And upon the following, he came both at morning and at night. Upon the evening of the fourth day, Jane seemed to feel the breaking of a brooding struggle in Lassiter. During all these visits, he had scarcely a word to say, though he watched her and played absent-mindedly with Faye. Jane had contented herself with silence. Soon little Faye substituted for the expression of regard, I like you, a warmer and more generous one. I love you. Thereafter, Lassiter came oftener to see Jane and her little protege. Daily, he grew more gentle and kind, and gradually developed a quaintly merry mood. In the morning, he lifted Faye upon his horse and let her ride, as he walked beside her to the edge of the sage. In the evening, he played with the child at an infinite variety of games she invented. And then, oftener than not, he accepted Jane's invitation to supper. No other visitor came to the Witherstein house during those days, so that in spite of watchfulness he never forgot, Lassiter began to show he felt at home there. After the meal, they walked into the grove of cottonwoods, or up by the lakes, and little Fay held Lassiter's hand as much as she held Jane's. Thus a strange relationship was established, and Jane liked it. At twilight they always returned to the house, where Fay kissed them and went in to her mother. Lassiter and Jane were left alone. Then, if there were anything that a good woman could do to win a man and still preserve her self-respect, it was something that escaped the natural subtlety of a woman determined to allure. Jane's vanity, that after all was not great, was soon satisfied with Lassiter's silent admiration. 
and her honest desire to lead him from his dark, blood-stained path would never have blinded her to what she owed herself. But the driving passion of her religion and its call to save Mormons' lives, one life in particular, bore Jane Witherstein close to an infringement of her womanhood. In the beginning, she had reasoned that her appeal to Lassiter must be through the senses. With whatever means she possessed in the way of adornment, she enhanced her beauty. And she stooped to artifices that she knew were unworthy of her, but which she deliberately chose to employ. She made of herself a girl in every variable mood wherein a girl might be desirable. In those moods, she was not above the methods of an inexperienced, though natural, flirt. She kept close to him whenever opportunity afforded, and she was forever playfully, yet passionately underneath the surface, fighting him for possession of the great black guns. These he would never yield to her. And so in that manner, their hands were often and long in contact. The more of simplicity that she sensed in him, the greater the advantage she took. She had a trick of changing, and it was not altogether voluntary from this gay, thoughtless, girlish coquettishness to the silence and the brooding, burning mystery of a woman's mood. The strength and passion and fire of her were in her eyes, and she so used them that Lassiter had to see this depth in her, this haunting promise, more fitted to her years than the flaunting guise of a willful girl. The July days flew by. Jane reasoned that if it were possible for her to be happy during such a time, then she was happy. Little Fay completely filled a long, aching void in her heart. In fettering the hands of this Lassiter, she was accomplishing the greatest good of her life, and to do good, even in a small way, rendered happiness to Jane Witherstein. She had attended the regular Sunday services of her church. Otherwise, she had not gone to the village for weeks. It was unusual that none of her churchmen or friends had called upon her of late. But it was neglect for which she was glad. Judkins and his boy riders had experienced no difficulty in driving the white herd. So these warm July days were free of worry, and soon Jane hoped she had passed the crisis, and for her to hope was presently to trust and then to believe. She thought often of Venters, but in a dreamy, abstract way. She spent hours teaching and playing with little Fay, and the activity of her mind centered around Lassiter. The direction she had given her will seemed to blunt any branching off of thought from that straight line. The mood came to obsess her. In the end, when her awakening came, she learned that she had builded better than she knew. Lassiter, though kinder and gentler than ever, had parted with his quaint humor and his coldness and his tranquility to become a restless and unhappy man. Whatever the power of his deadly intent toward Mormons, that passion now had a rival, the one equally burning and consuming. Jane Witherstein had one moment of exultation before the dawn of a strange uneasiness. What if she had made of herself a lure, at tremendous cost to him and to her, and all in vain? That night in the moonlit grove, she summoned all her courage, and turning suddenly in the path, she faced Lassiter and leaned close to him, 
so that she touched him, and her eyes looked up to his. Lassiter, will you do anything for me? In the moonlight, she saw his dark, worn face change. And by that change, she seemed to feel him immovable as a wall of stone. Jane slipped her hands down to the swinging gun sheaths, and when she had locked her fingers around the huge, cold handles of the guns, she trembled, as with a chilling ripple all over her body. May I take your guns? Why? he asked. And for the first time to her, his voice carried a harsh note. Jane felt his hard, strong hands close round her wrists. It was not wholly with intent that she leaned toward him, for the look of his eyes and the feel of his hands made her weak. It's no trifle, no woman's whim. It's deep as my heart. Let me take them. Why? I want to keep you from killing more men, Mormons. You must let me save you from more wickedness, more wanton bloodshed. Then the truth forced itself falteringly from her lips. You must let Help me to keep my vow to Millie Earn. I swore to her, as she lay dying, that if ever anyone came here to avenge her, I swore I would stay his hand. Perhaps I, I alone can save the, the man who, who, oh, Lassiter, I feel that I can't change you. Then soon you'll be out to kill, and you'll kill by instinct, and among the Mormons you kill will be the one who, Lassiter, if you care a little for me, let me, for my sake, let me take your guns. As if her hands had been those of a child, he unclasped their clinging grip from the handles of his guns, and pushing her away, he turned his gray face to her in one look of terrible realization, and then strode off in the shadows of the cottonwoods. When the first shock of her futile appeal to Lassiter had passed, Jane took his cold, silent condemnation and abrupt departure not so much as a refusal to her entreaty as a hurt and stunned bitterness for her attempt at his betrayal. Upon further thought and slow consideration of Lassiter's past actions, she believed he would return and forgive her. The man could not be hard to a woman, and she doubted that he could stay away from her but at the point where she had hoped to find him vulnerable, she now began to fear he was proof against all persuasion. The iron and stone quality that she had early suspected in him had actually cropped out as an impregnable barrier. Nevertheless, if Lassiter remained in Cottonwoods, she would never give up her hope and desire to change him. She would change him if she had to sacrifice everything dear to her except hope of heaven. Passionately devoted as she was to her religion, she had yet refused to marry a Mormon. But a situation had developed wherein self paled in the great white light of religious duty of the highest order. That was the leading motive, the divinely spiritual one. But there were other motives, which, like tentacles, aided in drawing her will to the acceptance of a possible abnegation and through the watches of that sleepless night, Jane Witherstein, in fear and sorrow and doubt, came finally to believe 
that if she must throw herself into Lassiter's arms to make him abide by Thou shalt not kill, she would yet do well. In the morning, she expected Lassiter at the usual hour, but she was not able to go at once to the court, so she sent little Fay. Mrs. Larkin was ill and required attention. It appeared that the mother, from the time of her arrival at Witherstein House, had relaxed and was slowly losing her hold on life. Jane had believed that absence of worry and responsibility, coupled with good nursing and comfort, would mend Mrs. Larkin's broken health. Such, however, was not the case. When Jane did get out to the court, Faye was there alone, and at the moment, embarking on a dubious voyage down the stone-lined amber stream upon a craft of two brooms and a pillow. Faye was as delightfully wet as she could possibly wish to get. Clatter of hoofs distracted Faye and interrupted the scolding she was gleefully receiving from Jane. The sound was not the light-spirited trot that Bells made when Lassiter rode him into the outer court. This was slower and heavier, and Jane did not recognize in it any of her other horses. The appearance of Bishop Dyer startled Jane. He dismounted with his rapid, jerky motion, flung the bridle, and, as he turned toward the inner court and stalked up on the stone flags, his boots rang. In his authoritative front, and in the red anger unmistakably flaming in his face, he reminded Jane of her father. Is that the Larkin pauper? he asked brusquely, without any greeting to Jane. It's Mrs. Larkin's little girl, replied Jane slowly. I hear you intend to raise the child. Yes, of course, you mean to give her Mormon bringing up? No. His questions had been swift. She was amazed at a feeling that someone else was replying for her. I've come to say a few things to you. He stopped to measure her with stern speculative eye. Jane Witherstein loved this man. From earliest childhood, she had been taught to revere and love bishops of her church, and for ten years Bishop Dyer had been the closest friend and counselor of her father, and for the greater part of that period her own friend and scriptural teacher. Her interpretation of her creed and her religious activity and fidelity to it, her acceptance of mysterious and holy Mormon truths, were all invested in this bishop. Bishop Dyer as an entity was next to God. He was God's mouthpiece to the little Mormon community at Cottonwoods. God revealed himself in secret to this mortal. And Jane Witherstein suddenly suffered a paralyzing affront to her consciousness of reverence by some strange, irresistible twist of thought wherein she saw this bishop as a man. And the train of thought hurtled the rising, crying protests of that other self whose poise she had lost. It was not her bishop who eyed her in curious measurement. It was a man who tramped into her presence without removing his hat, who had no greeting for her, who had no semblance of courtesy. In looks as in action, he made her think of a bull stamping cross-grained into a corral. She had heard of Bishop Dyer forgetting the minister in the fury of a common man, and now she was to feel it. The glance by which she measured him in turn momentarily veiled the divine in the ordinary. 
he looked a rancher. He was booted, spurred, and covered with dust. He carried a gun at his hip, and she remembered that he had been known to use it. But during the long moment while he watched her, there was nothing commonplace in the slow-gathering might of his wrath. Brother Tull has talked to me, he began. It was your father's wish that you marry Tull and my order. You refused him? Yes. You would not give up your friendship with that tramp, Venters? No. But you'll do as I order, he thundered. Why, Jane Witherstein, you are in danger of becoming a heretic. You can thank your Gentile friends for that. You face the damning of your soul to perdition. In the flux and reflux of the whirling torture of Jane's mind, that new, daring spirit of hers vanished in the old, habitual order of her life. She was a Mormon, and the bishop regained ascendance. It's well I got you in time, Jane Witherstein. What would your father have said to these goings-on of yours? He would have put you in a stone cage on bread and water. He would have taught you something about Mormonism. Remember, you're a born Mormon. There have been Mormons who turned heretic, damn their souls. But no born Mormon ever left us yet. Ah, I see your shame. Your faith is not shaken. You are only a wild girl. The bishop's tone softened. Well, it's enough that I got to you in time. Now tell me about this Lassiter. I hear strange things. What do you wish to know? Queried Jane. About this man. You hired him? Yes, he's riding for me. When my riders left me, I had to have anyone I could get. Is it true what I hear? That he's a gunman? A Mormon hater? Steeped in blood? True. Terribly true, I fear. But what's he doing here in Cottonwoods? This place isn't notorious enough for such a man. Sterling in the villages north, where there's universal gunpacking and fights every day, where there are more men like him. It seems to me they would attract him most. We're only a wild, lonely border settlement. It's only recently that the rustlers have made killings here, nor have there been saloons till recently, nor the drifting in of outcasts. Has not this gunman some special mission here? Jane maintained silence. Tell me, ordered Bishop Dyer, sharply. Yes, she replied. Do you know what it is? Yes, tell me that. Bishop Dyer, I don't want to tell. He waved his hand in an imperative gesture of command. The red once more leaped to his face, and in his steel-blue eyes glinted a pinpoint of curiosity. That first day, whispered Jane, Lassiter said he came here to find Millie Earn's grave. With downcast eyes, Jane watched the swift flow of the amber water. She saw it and tried to think of it, of the stones, of the ferns. But like her body, her mind was in a leaden vice. Only the bishop's voice could release her. Seemingly there was silence of longer duration than all her former life. For what else? When Bishop Dyer's voice did cleave the silence, it was high, curiously shrill, and on the point of breaking. It released Jane's tongue, but she could not lift her eyes. To kill the man who persuaded Millie Earn to abandon her home and her husband, and her God. With wonderful distinctness, 
Jane Witherstein heard her own clear voice. She heard the water murmur at her feet and flow on to the sea. She heard the rushing of all the waters in the world. They filled her ears with low, unreal murmurings. These sounds that deadened her brain and yet could not break the long and terrible silence. Then, from somewhere, from an immeasurable distance, came a slow, guarded, clinking, clanking step. Into her, it shot electrifying life. It released the weight upon her numbed eyelids. Lifting her eyes, she saw, ashen, shaken, stricken, not the bishop, but the man. And beyond him, from round the corner, came that soft, silvery step. A long black boot with a gleaming spur swept into sight. And then, Lassiter. Bishop Dyer did not see, did not hear. He stared at Jane in the throes of sudden revelation. Ah, I understand, he cried in hoarse accents. That's why you made love to this Lassiter, to bind his hands. It was Jane's gaze riveted upon the rider that made Bishop Dyer turn. Then, clear sight failed her. Dizzily, in a blur, she saw the bishop's hand jerk to his hip. She saw a gleam of blue and spout of red. In her ears burst a thundering report. The court floated in darkening circles around her, and she fell into utter blackness. The darkness lightened, turned to a slow-drifting haze, and lifted. Through a thin film of blue smoke, she saw the rough-hewn timbers of the court roof. A cool, damp touch moved across her brow. She smelled powder, and it was that which galvanized her suspended thought. She moved to see that she lay prone upon the stone flags with her head on Lassiter's knee, and he was bathing her brow with water from the stream. The same swift glance, shifting low, brought into range of her sight a smoking gun and splashes of blood. Oh, she moaned, and was drifting, sinking again into darkness when Lassiter's voice arrested her. It's all right, Jane. It's all right. Did you kill him? She whispered. Who? That fat party who was here? No, I didn't kill him. Oh, Lassiter. Say, it was queer for you to faint. I thought you were such a strong woman, not faintish like that. You're all right now, only some pale. I thought you'd never come to, but I'm awkward round women folks. I couldn't think of anything. Lassiter, the gun there, the blood. So that's troubling you. I reckon I needn't. You see, it was this way. I come round the house and seen that fat party and heard him talking loud. Then he sees me and very impolite goes straight for his gun. He oughtn't have tried to throw a gun on me, whatever his reason was but that's meeting me on my own grounds. I've seen running molasses that was quicker than him. Now, I didn't know who he was, visitor or friend or relation of yours, though I seen he was a Mormon all over, and I couldn't get serious about shooting, so I winged him, put a bullet through his arm as he was pulling at his gun, and he dropped the gun there and a little blood. I told him he'd introduced himself sufficient and to please move out of my vicinity, and he went. Lassiter spoke with slow, cool, soothing voice, 
in which there was a hint of levity, and his touch, as he continued to bathe her brow, was gentle and steady. His impassive face and the kind gray eyes further stilled her agitation. He drew on you first, and you deliberately shot to cripple him. You wouldn't kill him. You... Lassiter? That's about the size of it. Jane kissed his hand. All that was calm and cool about Lassiter instantly vanished. Don't do that. I won't stand it. And I don't care a damn who that fat party was. He helped Jane to her feet and to a chair. Then with the wet scarf he had used to bathe her face, he wiped the blood from the stone flags, and picking up the gun, he threw it upon a couch. With that he began to pace the court, and his silver spurs jangled musically, and the great gun sheaths softly brushed against his leather chaps. So, is true what I heard him say? Lassiter asked, presently halting before her. You made love to me, to bind my hands? Yes, confessed Jane. It took all her woman's courage to meet the gray storm of his glance. All these days that you've been so friendly and like a partner, all these evenings that have been so bewildering to me, your beauty and, and the way you looked and came close to me, they were woman's tricks to bind my hands? Yes. And your sweetness that seemed so natural, and your throwing little Fay and me so much together to make me love the child. All that was for the same reason? Yes. Lassiter flung his arms, a strange gesture for him. Maybe it wasn't much in your Mormon thinking for you to play that game. But to ring the child in, that was hellish. Jane's passionate, unheeding zeal began to loom darkly. Lassiter, whatever my intention in the beginning, Faye loves you dearly, and I... I've grown to... to like you. That's powerful kind of you now, he said. Sarcasm and scorn made his voice that of a stranger. And you sit there and look me straight in the eyes. You're a wonderful, strange woman, Jane Witherstein. I'm not ashamed, Lassiter. I told you I'd try to change you. Would you mind telling me just what you tried? I tried to make you see beauty in me and be softened by it. I wanted you to care for me so that I could influence you. It wasn't easy. At first you were stone blind. Then I hoped you'd love little Fay, and through that come to feel the horror of making children fatherless. Jane Witherstein, either you're a fool or noble beyond my understanding. Maybe you're both. I know you're blind. What you meant is one thing. What you did was to make me love you. Lassiter, I reckon I'm a human being, though I never loved anyone but my sister, Millie Earn. That was long. Oh, are you Millie's brother? Yes. I was, and I loved her. There never was anyone but her in my life, till now. Didn't I tell you that long ago I backtrailed myself from women? I was a Texan ranger, till, till Millie left home. And then I became something else. Lassiter. 
For years, I've been a lonely man, set on one thing. I came here and met you. And now I'm not the man I was. The change was gradual, and I took no notice of it. I understand now that never satisfied longing to see you, listen to you, watch you, feel you near me. It's plain now why you were never out of my thoughts. I've never had no thoughts but of you. I've lived and breathed for you. And now, when I know what it means, what you've done, I'm burning up with hell's fire. Oh, Lassiter, no, no, you don't love me that way. Jane cased. If that's what love is, then I do. Forgive me. I didn't mean to make you love me like that. Oh, what a tangle of our lives. You, Millie Earn's brother, and I, heedless, mad to melt your heart toward Mormons. Lassiter, I may be wicked, but not wicked enough to hate. If I couldn't hate Tull, could I hate you? After all, Jane, maybe you're only blind, Mormon blind. That only can explain what's close to selfishness. I'm not selfish. I despise the very word. If I were free... But you're not free. Not free from Mormonism. And in playing this game with me, you've been unfaithful. Unfaithful? faltered Jane. Yes, I said unfaithful. You're faithful to your bishop and unfaithful to yourself. You're false to your womanhood and true to your religion. But for a saving innocence... You'd have made yourself low and vile, betraying yourself, betraying me, all to bind my hands and keep me from snuffing out Mormon life. It's your damned Mormon blindness. Is it vile? Is it blind? Is it only Mormonism to save human life? No, Lassiter. That's God's law, divine, universal for all Christians. The blindness I mean is blindness that keeps you from seeing the truth. I've known many good Mormons, but some are blacker than hell. You won't see that, even when you know it. Else why all this blind passion to save the life of that, that... Jane shut out the light, and the hands she held over her eyes trembled and quivered against her face. Blind, yes. And let me make it clear and simple to you. Lassiter went on, his voice losing its tone of anger. Take, for instance, that idea of yours last night, when you wanted my guns. It was good and beautiful and showed your heart. But, why, Jane, it was crazy. Mind, I'm assuming that life to me is as sweet as to any other man. And to preserve that life is each man's first and closest thought. Where would any man be on this border without guns? Where especially would Lassiter be? Well, I'd be under the sage, with thousands of other men now living, and sure better men than me. Gunpacking in the West since the Civil War has grown into a kind of moral law, and out here on the border is the difference between a man and something not a man. Look what you're taking Venter's guns from him all but made him. Why, your churchmen carry guns. Tull has killed a man and drawed on others. Your bishop has shot a half a dozen men, and it wasn't through prayers of his that they recovered. And today, 
He'd have shot me if he'd been quick enough on the draw. Could I walk or ride down into Cottonwoods without my guns? This is a wild time, Jane Witherstein. This year of our Lord, 1871. No time for a woman, exclaimed Jane brokenly. Oh, Lassiter, I feel helpless, lost, and don't know where to turn. If I am blind, then I need someone, a friend, you, Lassiter, more than ever. Well, I didn't say nothing about going back on you, did I? This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you've enjoyed this unabridged production of Riders of the Purple Sage, Part 5 of 12, by Zane Gray. If you've enjoyed this book, please become a monthly supporter by going to classictalesaudiobooks.com. Donate $5 a month and get a monthly coupon code for $8 off any audiobook order. It's a great way to build out your library of classic literature. Thanks for pitching in. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me every week and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.